0: Please take up your Bibles once more as we read Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 22. It's the entire chapter. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kileon. Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth, and they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malone and Kilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with The dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest in the house of her husband, each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should say, should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look. Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death, hearts, you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now the two of them went out, went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Again, thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you, O Lord, that you have again given us the gift of your word. And now we pray for your spirit to give us understanding, to give us insight, to understand what you say here and to know how to apply this text to our lives. Lord, we have seen your grace throughout our lives and we see your grace here as well. Help us to to see that and to and to walk in your ways. O Lord, we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, I didn't think you would come to church today to get a little history quiz, but I'm going to give you a little history quiz. I'm going to rattle off a few dates, and I'm going to see if you know what these dates represent. Now, you don't have to answer in church because you don't speak out in church, right? Only, only I get to talk, but, but answer in your hearts uh, if you know what these dates represent. The first one is October 28, 1929. The second is December 7th, 1941. The third is November 23rd, 1963. And the fourth is September 11th, 2001. Now, of course, the first one, October 28th, 1929, that's the date of the stock market crash of 1929 that launched the Great Depression, also called Black Monday. December 7th, that is the day that the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor in, in what uh, FDR called the day that shall forever live in infamy. November 23rd, 1963, of course, was the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the last president to have been assassinated. And of course, September 11th, that's the terrorist attacks by al-Qaeda on the World Trade Center in New York. All of these dates, and others also could be mentioned, personal dates as well, are tragedies in American history. These are deep, dark days in our history. They were some of the darkest days, and many people wondered why they happened, and what good could ever come of them. Perhaps some people even wondered, where was God during these events? Why didn't God stop them? Why wouldn't a good God, why would a good God allow these things to happen? Now, while we cannot say with any certainty why these things happen or what God purposed by allowing them to happen, we do know that a sovereign God providentially allowed these things to happen. We believe in a God who is in control of all things, even these days of disaster. However, while we don't know why God allowed these things to happen, we can have a little more confidence in that whatever God does, he is always going to do for his glory and for our ultimate good. And we see this here in the book of Ruth. We can have a little more confidence in behind what God purposes in the book of Ruth because we see how these events unfold. Now, just a little bit of introduction to the book of Ruth. The author is unknown. We don't know who wrote the book of Ruth. Tradition states that it was probably Samuel, the same person that we read about in First and 2 Samuel. But there's a genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth that suggests a date that is long past the time Samuel would have lived. of course, the date, we believe the date of this writing and the date of the events in Ruth are two different things. We see this all the time, right? Books can be about historical uh, events that occur. So the events that are happening in the book of Ruth are different than the timing of when it was written. The date of the writing, as we said, is probably around the mid-11th century BC after David had been made king. But the dates of the events in the book of Ruth as the opening line of Ruth states, are in the days when the judges ruled, which places these events sometime during the events recorded in the book of Judges, a period covering about 320, 350 years or so, from about 1375 B.C. all the way up to 1055 B.C. We don't know exactly why Ruth was written, but beyond that, the book of Ruth highlights the sovereignty of God and his covenant kindness. This is plainly evident as we see and we look at Ruth in the tapestry of redemptive history. The events of Ruth are sovereignly orchestrated, and that's, we're going to be talking about the sovereignty of God a lot in this series. The events in the book of Ruth are sovereignly orchestrated for the good of Naomi and the good of God's people, and also to display God's kindness and his glory. In fact, the fact that Ruth lies between Judges and Samuel highlights what we're going to see here is the need for a king. And that's how Ruth kind of ends. But moreover, God is going to use these events in the book of Ruth to bring about the Davidic dynasty and the birth of the greater David, Jesus Christ. So the two main themes in the book of Ruth that we're going to see running throughout the whole book of Ruth are first, the theme of kindness. The theme of kindness. This again is that Hebrew word hesed, which means kindness or loyalty or devotion or steadfast love. Here, whenever you see the word kindness in the book of Ruth, it's that word hesed. uh, We see Ruth shows kindness to Naomi. Boaz is going to show kindness to Ruth. And human kindness is often the vehicle that God will use to show kindness to his people. Another theme is the theme of redemption. Redemption is connected to kindness and forms the heart of the story. The heart of the story of Ruth is a story of redemption, which culminates with the redemption of Ruth and Naomi by Boaz. And this also pictures Christ's redemption for us on the cross with his blood. As we said earlier, Ruth is four chapters. So if you think of like a a play with four parts, we're going to look at Act 1 this morning. And Act 1 can be broken down into three main parts. In verses 1 through 5, we're going to see Naomi and her family take an ill-fated trip to Moab. In verses 6 through 18, we're going to see the kindness of a Moabite daughter-in-law shown to Naomi. And in verses 19 through 22, we're going to see a bitter return to Bethlehem. But all throughout, as we look at Ruth chapter 1, the big idea for this morning I want to get across is that God is going to show his kindness to us at our lowest points. God shows his kindness to us at our lowest points. So first we see an ill-fated trip to Moab in verses 1 through 5. All good stories start well. They all set the stage for what we're about to see. And the story in the book of Ruth is no different. Again, you look at verses 1 through 2 One through two here, where it says, Now it came to pass, in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, they were Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Instead of starting the story once upon a time, which would indicate that this is a fairy tale, we see that this story starts in a period in the days when the judges ruled, or literally in the days of the judging of the judges. This places the story of Ruth firmly in history, between the time of the conquest of the promised land, which we see in Joshua when the Israelites crossed the Jordan after being 40 years in the wilderness, they cross the Jordan and they take over the promised land of Canaan. So it's between that period and the period of the kings in Samuel, between the kings Saul and David and so forth. We see this is a period roughly of 300 or so years. Now, what do we know about the time of when the judges ruled? Well, you can read the book of Judges for that. And if you're familiar with the book of Judges, you know that that book sort of reads like the Wild West of the history of Israel. It was a crazy time. It was, a, it was so called because you had these men, these, or these people called the Judges who were raised up by God to continually deliver his people. You see a cycle in this. The people would sin. They would turn after other idols. They would forget the Lord their God. Then the God would punish them by sending another foreign nation in to oppress them. Then the people would cry out, oh, why are we being so oppressed? Oh, God, deliver us. Then God would raise up a judge to deliver the people. And then the cycle would repeat over and over again. It was also a time of moral, social, and spiritual unrest and decay. We see this as summed up by the refrain that you see later in the book of Judges, where we see, because there was no king in the land, the people did what was right in their own eyes. Henceforth, we see a need for a king. Now, if you read through the book of Judges, you might think that Israel is going to a very hot place in a handbasket. Yet within this period of chaos, And debauchery is this tale in the book of Ruth, a tale of kindness, a tale of redemption, a tale of steadfast love. Now, we're also told in the beginning here that there is a famine in the land. And this famine in the land, there's this famine in the land, and it drives a man from Bethlehem who takes his family and goes to another place. He goes to sojourn or to dwell in the land of Moab. Now, this is not unusual. <clears throat> we see this throughout the Old Testament. Whenever there was a famine in the promised land, somebody would leave the promised land and go somewhere else where the food was. We see Abraham did this several times. He goes to Egypt. Isaac, his son, did the same thing. And Jacob and his sons also did the same thing. Whenever there was a famine in the land, they would go to where the food was. And we would do the same thing today. If there was if there was a famine in the land, or if there was, let's say, there were no jobs In the town or in the state or in the county, we would move to where employment was. We need to support our families. It's not unusual. But there's a little bit of debate going on as to whether or not what Elimelech did was moral or the morality of his choice to move. He's leaving the land of promise. He's leaving the land that God had specifically given to them as a blessing. And he goes to live in the land of Israel's enemies, the Moabites were no friends to Israel. They were one of the bad guys if you will in the books of judges as well. Now finally then we're told the name of the man and his family. His his name is Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi and his two sons were named Malon and Kilion. Now just a little side note here to prove that God is not without a sense of irony and humor. There's a little bit of Hebrew wordplay going on here behind the scenes. The the name Elimelech means, my God is king. That's what it means, Elimelech, my God is king. And the town that he is leaving, Bethlehem, means house of bread. That's what it literally means. So the irony here is that the man whose name is, my God is king, is leaving the land of the king because the house of bread has no bread. So a little bit of Hebrew wordplay going on here. Now, while they're in the land of Moab, Naomi suffers the first of two devastating setbacks. First, her husband dies. We're told that her husband dies while the family was in Moab. We're not told how he died. We're only told that he died. There's no details in this. So now Naomi is left here in a foreign land, far from home, with her, only her two sons. But then things start to pick up a little bit as her two sons take Moabite wives. However... We also know that, again, the relationship with the Moabites was not good. So we see that perhaps this is not the wisest thing for the the two sons to do. Israel's history with the Moabites, as we said, is not good to say the least. Numbers chapters 22 through 25 kind of details a lot of this. As the, the Israelites were moving to the promised land, they wanted to go through the land of Moab, and the Moabites would not let them, so they had to go around. And then the Moabites, because they were scared... Uh, Balak, the king of Moab sends Balaam, the false prophet to curse the people. And of course the curses didn't work because God wouldn't let him curse them. So then he tempts the people with, with Moabite women and they, you have a, a great incident of, of sin and debauchery there. The bottom line of all that though is that there's always a danger to the Israelites whenever they lived in other lands and whenever they intermarried with uh, people of other nations. The temptation there was toward idolatry and toward something called syncretism where you kind of merge your own religion with the religion of the land now in verse 5 Naomi experiences the second devastating setback after living in Moab with her two sons and their wives tragedy again strikes her two sons die and here we see that she was left without her two sons and her husband she's by herself this is truly devastating This was a time where it was not good to be a woman by yourself. You're you're a woman with no husband, no sons, no prospect of of having any kind of support, and you're far from home in a foreign land. This is about as low as it gets for an Israelite woman. However, we know, as we said earlier, God is in control. Even in the darkest, deepest trials of our lives, Naomi doesn't see it yet but she is exactly where God wants her to be. God is here behind the scenes orchestrating events to accomplish his divine purposes. Naomi's darkest hour, after she has seemingly lost everything, she has far more than what she realizes. And there's a lesson here for us too. Maybe you're going through a devastating set of circumstances yourself. Or maybe you've recently gone through a set of devastating circumstances. Maybe you're in a position where you think that there's no light at the end of the tunnel, or maybe you can relate with that feeling. We have to remember in these times, when you feel hope, there's no hope at all, that God is in control. God is in control. He is not caught off guard by your circumstances. He is not going to be up there wondering what happened. Did I take my eyes off of you and all of a sudden something bad happened to you? No. What does our own catechism teach us in question and answer one? That without the will of your heavenly father, not a hair can fall from your head. He so preserves us. In fact, he is sovereignly orchestrating them, these bad things, for his glory And for your good. The good news is that God took the ultimate devastating circumstance. He took the ultimate devastating situation, the death of his son, Jesus Christ, and brought about the ultimate good for us and the ultimate manifestation of his glory. Now we move on to verses 6 through 18 as we see now the kindness of a Moabite daughter-in-law. So Naomi is destitute. She has lost her husband. She has lost her two sons. She has no grandchildren. Barrenness is another thing that God often uses for his purposes. Look at the stories of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah. All of these women, these godly women, were barren for a time. As we said, she is in a foreign land with no support system, no prospects. What is she to do? Well, she decides to get up and return home to Bethlehem. Look again, please, at verses 6 through 7. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore, she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So Naomi hears a report that God had visited his people and given them food. Now, again, don't fail to notice the hand of God at work here. A famine in Bethlehem drives Naomi and her family to Moab. Elimelech dies, her husband, her sons marry Moabite women, and then they die 10 years later. And now finally in the land of Bethlehem, the famine is over. God here is setting Naomi up for enormous blessings that are yet to be revealed. But for the time being, all Naomi knows is that there are no prospects here in Moab. This idea that the grass was greener in Moab is no longer true. So now she gets back up because she hears that the Lord had visited his people back home and she returns home. Now I want to take a look at that language here. The Lord had visited his people. Again, this uh, is the first mention of God in the book of Ruth. In fact, if you read the book of Ruth, God is almost like a behind the scenes actor here. But it is also the use of the covenant name Yahweh. Yahweh had visited his people. It's the same language that is used in Exodus when the people are being oppressed by the by the Pharaoh and they cry out to God. It says that God visited his people. It is a very covenant kind of language here that God visits with his people to 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 relieve them from the oppression that they have. It's covenant deliverance language. So Naomi gets up with Orpa and Ruth. Every time I see Orpah, I want to say Oprah, but it's Orpah. Uh, you get that transposition of letters there. But anyway, she gets up with her daughters-in-law, and they start to go back to Judah. Now at some point on the, on the journey, Naomi then turns to her two daughters-in-law and urges them to go back. In verses 8 and 9, she tells them, go back to the homes of your family. She invokes the Lord's blessing on them for their kindness, their hesed. To her and, she, and their respect that they had to her dead sons. And then she prays that the Lord grant them rest in the house of their husbands. In other words, what she's saying is like, look, Orpah, Ruth, I have no prospects here. I have nothing to offer you anymore. Why don't you go home? Go back home. You're still young. You can still find husbands. You can still raise a family. Go back home. There's nothing here with me. Don't hit your wagon to my dying star. Naomi has hit rock bottom for a Jewish woman, and she doesn't want to drag Orpah and Ruth down with her. Then much weeping ensues, and both Orpah and Ruth express a desire to stay with Naomi. And then in verses 11 through 13, she delivers a second speech to the girls, this time with a little more directness. She fires off some rhetorical questions. She says, have I sons left in my womb? The answer is no, she is an old widow. And then she says, even if I were to remarry, and even if I were to bear sons tonight, would you wait until they were old enough to marry? Again, the answer is no. In other words, if God were to work a miracle and give me a husband tonight and then children tomorrow, would you wait for them to grow up and marry them? What Naomi is saying to Orpah and Ruth is that not only is she past the age of bearing children herself, but if miracle of miracle, she were to remarry and bear sons, it would be years before they were old enough for her, for them to marry him, uh, the daughters. In other words, she's just telling them bluntly. She's like, look, you have no future with me. Go back home. Go back home. You'll, you'll, you'll have better prospects there. Now, it might be easy for us to sit here and say to Naomi, were, we, were she here? Look. You believe in God, right? You believe in a sovereign God. You've heard all the stories of, of Israel's youth. It's like, how could you, how could you think this way? Like, what do you mean you have no future? What, what about Sarah? What about Rebecca? What about Rachel? What about all these great women of faith who were faithful in all this? Well, how can you doubt God? And technically, that's correct, right? I mean, if, if we feel as if somehow God has done us wrong, that is a problem in our own thinking. But... That would be pastorally insensitive, right? You need to be and meet people where they're at, not where you want them to be. You can't put a time limit on grieving. Naomi is grieving. She's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. She's grieving. There's no time limit on grief. All we can do sometimes is just be there for that person, to be that shoulder that they can cry on and be that personal reminder of the love of God in their lives. Jesus tells us to mourn with those who mourn and to weep with those who weep. In John 11, when Lazarus died, Jesus didn't tell Martha and Mary, stop crying, don't worry about it, I'm going to raise up Lazarus, don't worry about it, stop your crying. No, what does he do? He weeps with them. He weeps with them. How awesome is it to know that God weeps with us in our tragedies? And that the Son of God took on human flesh to identify with our tragedy. So back to Ruth. After some more weeping, we see that Orpah kisses her mother-in-law, but Ruth then, it says, clung to her. She clings to Naomi. In other words, Orpah sees the writing on the wall and she leaves. No fuss, no muss. Can't hold it against her. She sees, okay, I have no prospects here. I'm going to go back home. But Ruth, on the other hand, clings to her. And don't miss this. This is a sign of great love and commitment and loyalty. The word here for cling is the same word you see in Genesis 2.24 when it says, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, or cling to his wife. This is true kindness. This is above and beyond kindness that God shows to his people and that Christ shows to us, Ruth is showing that same level of kindness to Naomi. Now, Naomi thinks that the hand of the Lord has gone out against her, but it is now the hand of the Lord that has brought Ruth into her life. In verses 16 and 17, we see Ruth's love and devotion toward Naomi is on full display here. Don't tell me to leave you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Where your people are, that's where I want to be. Your God will be my God. And where you die, that's where I want to be buried. And then Ruth even swears a curse upon herself to Naomi, wishing herself to be cursed should she ever leave Naomi's side. An oath that she swears in the name of Yahweh, no less. This is not the emotional reaction of a distraught young woman, but a deep spiritual act of loyalty and commitment. Ruth, by way of an oath to God himself, to Yahweh, has sworn to forsake her home, to forsake her family, to forsake her people, and to forsake her own gods. Unlike Naomi who has had everything stripped from her, Ruth willingly forsakes everything to stay with Naomi. Moreover, the language Ruth uses is reminiscent of the covenant language that Yahweh uses with Israel. Yahweh says to Israel, "I will be your God, you will be my people." And that's what Ruth says. Says, "Your God will be my God, your people will be my people." Now, whether or not Ruth knows any of this is beside the point. She is swearing undying devotion to Naomi and her people and her God. Now, again, we could see God's sovereignty at work here. Orpah goes back, but Ruth stays. Naomi thinks she has lost everything, but she has gained far more than she ever could realize. Ruth's kindness and devotion to Naomi is the vehicle through which God will show his kindness and devotion to Naomi. And of course, the lesson for us is that we need to see beyond the pain of our trials and tragedy to see how God is ready to bless us with his grace and with his kindness. Now we look at verses 19 through 22 as a, we see a bitter return to Moab. Naomi and Ruth make it back to Bethlehem. And when they arrive, we're told that the whole town was stirred because of them. Now, we, why was the whole town stirred at their arrival? We're not told explicitly. Why were they, maybe they were buzzing because Naomi left 10 years ago with her husband and two sons, and now she's returning alone except for this Moabite woman that's following her. Were they buzzing about Ruth being a Moabite? It's like, who's, why is she bringing a Moabite into our land here? We can't be sure, but we all live here in Sutton, right? It's a small town, and we know how small towns can be, right? You, know, you just know how it is when someone goes away and they come back. It's like, wow, what happened to you? You know, you see that going on here. But what we can say with this, some degree of certainty is that trials and tragedies can take a toll on one's life, right? This is a harsh reality of life under the sun. These trials can cause us to despair, can take a heavy toll on our lives, and we see that here. Notice what the women of Bethlehem say. They say, is this Naomi. In other words, we can sort of imply that the last 10 years probably were not very kind to her and you could see it on her face. Is this Naomi? And upon hearing the women whispering, Naomi's emotions then begin to boil over. In verse 21, she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Again, there's another Hebrew wordplay going on here. Naomi means pleasant. Mara means bitter. In other words, Naomi went away pleasant and she comes back bitter. I went away full. I went away with a husband and two sons. And Yahweh, the Lord, has brought me back empty. I am widowed. I am childless. Why call me Mara? Why call me pleasant? Nothing pleasant has happened to me. Call me bitter, because the Lord has brought me back empty. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The Lord has testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. In a very real sense, she's not wrong. The Lord has brought calamity on her. The Lord has brought her back empty. She felt this back in verse 13, when she says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, to be sure, the Lord blesses obedience and punishes disobedience. This is generally true, but it is wrong to assume that the opposite is true, that my calamity is a result of God punishing my sin. We don't know that with certainty. I mean, that's one of the main lessons from the book of Job. Job had a lot of things happen to him, but in all of these things, he was righteous before the Lord. He was not being punished for sin. That's what his friends thought. His friends thought, just repent, and then God will lift his hand off of you. And it's like, I've done nothing wrong, but I'm going to take what the Lord is giving to me. The Lord gives, the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. As we said, God uh, sovereignly orchestrates these tragedies for his glory and for our good. And Naomi here is going to see this eventually. But in saying this, I don't want to discount Naomi's pain, her existential pain. Maybe there are some of us here who are going through a similar existential pain as Naomi. I wouldn't presume to guess upon it. I wouldn't presume to belittle it either. But maybe like Naomi, you feel as if the hand of the Lord has gone out heavy against you. Maybe you feel like you went away full and you're coming back empty. And furthermore, maybe you even feel guilty complaining about it to God. But I want to tell you here, with the authority of God's word, that God wants to hear your lament. There are many psalms in the book of Psalms that lament, where you see the psalmist lamenting his state before God. Psalm 62, 8 says, trust in the Lord at all times. People, pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge. God wants to hear your lament. He's got big shoulders. He can take it. In fact, you know who started out full and became empty for us? It was Jesus Christ. He left the glories of heaven uh, being in, in perfect, eternal communion with the Father and came down on a divine rescue mission. He emptied himself for us. He was full. He became empty. He did this so he can turn our bitterness into blessing. Our weeping to true joy. This is the hope that we who are in Christ have by virtue of his life, his death, and resurrection. Now, again, we don't want to discount what Naomi's pain is, and any one of us, were we in her situation, would probably feel the same way. She cannot see her way out of this, she cannot see a light at the end of the tunnel. She thinks everything that has happened to her, that's it. This is my lot in life. I'm going to be Mara now, I'm going to be bitter. But just like in verses 3 through 5, where Naomi receives a double uh, whammy, a double sort of curse, the narrator here at the end of the chapter gives us a glimpse of a double blessing to come. Look, please, again at verse 22, if you would, where it says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. We've already talked about Ruth's great pledge of loyalty and devotion to Naomi. And Naomi here has absolutely no idea how so not empty she is. The first blessing is Ruth is in her life. Ruth clung to her when everyone else left. The second blessing is that Naomi and Ruth return at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, what's so special about this? If you remember how the story started, there was a famine in the land. The house of bread had no bread. But then the Lord visited his people and gave them food. And now they are reaping. They are getting ready to harvest. This is the blessing now. The house of bread is full. It has bread again. And it sets the stage for what we'll see in Act 2 or Chapter 2, for which you will have to come next week to hear. But it is very easy in the midst of our trials to see the hand of the Lord working against us. It's particularly easy when we feel that the Lord has brought calamity upon us and to to, to miss the kindness and the blessings of the Lord. Yet one of the themes in Ruth, which the narrator brings out beautifully, is that the covenant kindness, the hesed of the Lord, is often masked as hard times. The kindness of the Lord is often masked as hard times. And also, that kindness is mediated. It is given to us through the kindness of others, even a Moabite daughter in law. God's Hesed, His kindness, often comes to us in unexpected packages. And because of this, it is vital that we do not allow a brother or a sister to endure trials alone. Not only can we bring comfort and consolation to them in their time of of need, but the Lord will often use us then to communicate his kindness, his covenant kindness to these dear brothers and sisters. As we close this morning, this has been a message about God showing his kindness to us at our lowest points. We see this in how the Lord has sovereignly brought Ruth into Naomi's life in the midst of her disaster. And if you know the end of the story of Ruth, you know that it's going to work out very well for Naomi in the end. But this isn't just a story of a woman from Bethlehem and her Moabite daughter-in-law. This is a story of how God is sovereignly orchestrating the events of redemptive history to bring about the Messiah, to bring about Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because Naomi's blessings will be our blessings in Christ. God shows his kindness to us at our lowest points in Jesus Christ. Romans 5 tells us that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's our lowest point. It doesn't get much lower than being a sinner. And it doesn't get much better than being made alive in Christ. The story of Ruth also shows us God's kindness to all nations. Ruth, as you saw here and you'll see throughout the book, is often described as Ruth the Moabite or the Moabitess. Her her national identity is always connected to her name. The narrator doesn't want us to miss this fact that she is not an Israelite. She is not a Jew. She is a Moabitess. But God's covenant kindness extends beyond the borders of ethnic Israel to include people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And because Ruth the Moabite can receive the kindness of God, we too, almost entirely Gentile, can receive the kindness of God as well. Moreover, we are to extend that kindness to all nations. However, this is a kindness that only comes through faith in Christ. There is no other way. If there are any here, or maybe hearing this later, who have not placed their faith and trust in Christ... I implore you now to repent and believe the gospel of Christ. God's kindness and mercy awaits, for those, awaits those who repent of their sins and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And if you do believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior, then rest in him. Take comfort in the fact that God shows his kindness to us even in the midst of our disasters. Doing so allows us to say with supreme confidence As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, for this light and momentary affliction is now preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for the kindness that you showed Naomi The kindness that is being mediated through Ruth, her daughter-in-law. And Lord, we are so thankful that this story of kindness and, and redemption is really our story of kindness and redemption. You showed kindness to us in our lowest points. And you redeemed us from our slavery to sin and brought us into the kingdom of Christ. So Lord, we pray that the kindness that you've shown to us, may we show that kindness to others. May we be that light in a dark world. We ask this in Jesus' name.